This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thank you very much. Thank you. And a big hand to Steve for putting this awesome event on. Thank you so much, Steve. So thank you very much for having me. Um, if any of you have seen me before, I usually do these sort of long, discursive, story-based talks with lots of rich imagery, video, audio. I ain't doing any of that today. Um, today is basically going to be sort of a playbook, hints and tips type talk. It's going to be very fast, bang, bang, bang. So buckle up. So a few years ago, I spotted a trend. A lot of my friends have moved from kind of being senior designers to being design leads or maybe heads of a small team or maybe even leading a department, maybe even directors, and some of them had even become like company sort of uh, directors. Um, they'd finally got that seat at the table they were looking for and they'd so desperately wanted. But rather than being happy, they were more stressed than ever before. They'd hoped that becoming a design leader would somehow solve all the problems they had as an individual contributor. But in fact, it just created a ton more, a whole bunch of new problems that they just weren't experienced in dealing with. They'd fallen from this sort of myth of leadership, the idea that all you need is power and authority to make change, and somehow things will magically get better. However, it turns out that power and authority usually isn't enough. Power may give you more opportunity to influence, but power alone doesn't cut it. Instead, you need to develop a whole new set of skills, which I'll be talking about later in this presentation. So I talked to my friends over tea and cake. Um, I'm British after all. And a pattern started to emerge. It was as though I was having exactly the same conversation over and over again kind of a bit of sort of Groundhog Day. Most of my friends have found themselves in companies that genuinely valued design, which for many of them was a first. And they've been asked to kind of grow their teams and raise the impact of design significantly. Sounded amazing at the interview, but it was starting to prove problematic. They were getting inundated by resumes, but few of the people applying had the necessary skills they were looking for. Most were only 18 months out of a general assembly course and already calling themselves a senior designer. When they did find somebody suitable, these people were in such high demand that a bidding war would start. When they did find the right people, they only seemed to stick around for you know, 9, 12, 18 months before being attracted to the next opportunity. And as a result, my friends were spending all their time recruiting. They'd sign up for a leadership role, but basically they'd become recruiting managers. If they did manage to build a good team, they were finding it difficult to execute. Doubling their team size didn't seem to double their output. In fact, for every new person they added, it seemed like the gears would grind slower and slower. This was especially frustrating for a lot of my friends that came from an agency background that were used to delivering work in three months or six months, and now it was taking them maybe 16. Another common problem my friends were finding was the need to manage upwards. It was all very well having a seat at the table, but it was often seen as a high chair. Marketing had the budget, thank you, IT had the power, and the designers were sat in the corner playing with the crayons. <laughs> it turns out that most organizations really only care where the money's being spent. And if you have a 100 or 200 person IT team, and you have a marketing team that are spending millions of above the line advertising, then little, you know, really sort of, you know, little of the organization cares what a few designers are doing in a, a random room down the corridor. They struggle to get a look in. 
managing upwards has suddenly consumed so much of their time, they didn't have time to properly look after their teams. Probably one of the reasons why their turnover was so quick. In many cases, it was their first time in a leadership position. And prior to that, maybe design had reported to IT or marketing or product. And as such, none of the managerial frameworks were in place. My friends were having to create everything from scratch without any role models to follow. As a result, they were feeling frustrated, they were feeling stretched, and they were wondering if they'd made a terrible mistake. Maybe design management wasn't for them. Maybe they should go back to being an individual contributor. I'm sure we've felt this way, everybody in the room at some stage or another, that somebody would suddenly come along and unmask you Scooby-Doo style for the fake that you were. It's really tough. Now, design leadership is still a relatively new activity. We've had technologists and marketers on the board for as long as I can remember. However, design representation at even sort of red, relatively mid-levels is still a novelty, well, at least where I come from. Most organizations are lucky to have a director-level designer, let alone a VP or the mythical chief design officer that sits on the board and sort of is a wellspring for all this great design thinking in the company. So I want to just do a quick gauge in the room. I know it's cheesy asking people to put their hands up and everybody does it, but can I just get a quick show of hands, genuinely, who is a design leader in the room? And I say leader rather than manager, because you can lead by not managing. So maybe about 10% of the audience. Okay, so you're my primary persona. This talk is kind of largely aimed at you. My secondary persona is who has a boss in the room? Few, okay, you're my secondary persona. So for you guys and girls, um, hopefully this will show all the amazing things your design leaders are doing. And you look at this and go, yes, my leader, my boss does all of these things. They might not, and if they don't, then maybe use this as a bit of gentle advice to say, hey, look, that Andy guy said you should do this, this, and this. And also, if you're thinking about becoming a design leader in any shape or form, hopefully this will be helpful. So I've been an accidental leader myself for the past 12 years. I say accidental because I never set out to lead teams. I set out to put great design into the world not to manage 30 people. I had no real training, I just sort of fell into it. And the, probably the majority of design leaders in this room are in the same boat as me. I needed to find a better way to learn to be a great design leader, or at least an average design leader, to be honest. Great's a little bit, you know, punching. I am British after all, so I don't want to be set myself too high. Um, so what I did is I invited the smartest design leaders I knew to join me in an online community. We created a kind of a, a Slack community for design leaders. I also organized a conference called Leading Design, bringing like you know, 20, 30 design leaders together in London to try and sort of share their knowledge and learning so my friends could benefit. And this allowed me to talk to all of these smart people and slowly over the last few years I've got better. Um, this might feel like a bit of a cheesy sort of sales thing, I'm at somebody else's conference, I'm talking about my own, but Leading Design sold out this year anyway, so, um, but it is a good fun conference, so maybe next year. Uh, also, if you happen to find yourself leading a team internally, um, at a sort of mid, medium or large company, and then the design leadership Slack channel might be of interest for you. So ping me an email and let's chat. Like I said, I never set out to be a leader of design teams. I mean, who dreams of growing up to be a manager? I was part of Generation X. Like, for me, management was the enemy. Management was like the people in the movie office space. I wanted to be smashing the printer, not ordering more cartridges. Um, and then one day I woke up and I accidentally was that person. I was that manager. Now, some days I feel I'm doing a pretty okay job. And other days I feel like I'm the living embodiment of the Peter Principle. The idea that you get promoted to the level of your own incompetence. Um, 
a lot of people in the room know me. That's a worry. Um, so that might sound a little bit harsh on myself, but this was actually a deliberate design decision. Because I wanted to build my company in a way that I was the least talented person in the room. And I kind of somehow feel like I've succeeded in a, in a good way. But let me explain. Um, when I started ClearLeft, the general model of design leadership was this. It was a superstar designer who surrounded themselves by sycophantic juniors who would like, you know, drip on every word of design genius. These design gods sort of wanted to be the one unquestionable source of truth. So they didn't want to hire anyone better than them in case they'd be unmasked. You know, they wanted to be the single authority and everyone else would just do what they said. It was all very madmen. This was a sort of traditional approach of leadership and it still is pretty much the same today. This idea that those high up in the organization kind of get there by standing on the shoulders of their team. And on a benefit, that means you have a wider view of scanning the horizon. But it also means that your weight is crushing all the people below you, crushing their shoulders. This was a model that never really attracted me. In fact, I found myself sort of adopting just naturally a more supportive approach, which I later learned was called servant leadership. In the book, Orbiting the Giant Hairball, the author talks about creative leadership being more like a giant fruit tree. Leaders are the roots, the trunks, and the branches of the tree, providing support and nutrition, and pushing the fruits, which are your team, up to the sunshine to let them thrive, carrying their weight on your shoulders. This felt like a much more attractive model of leadership for me. The idea that you hire people who are better than you, then create space for them to do the best work that they can. So this is the model I try to create. You provide air cover, you provide ground support, and clear the barriers out of the way. Now this seemed like a grown-up model. It's one that prioritizes organizational learning and growth. Also, when I started ClearLeft 12 years ago, I read this book about how to be a successful CEO. And one of the biggest tips was like, as a good CEO, as a good leader, you need to constantly be making yourself redundant. All the things that other people in the organization can do that you currently do, you should offload to them. So all you end up doing is the things that nobody else can do. This is basically a fancy way of saying bad leaders dictate, good leaders delegate. It's obvious folk wisdom. I also found myself kind of using the phrase, processes don't make great products, people do. If you have a team full of great designers, great developers, great product managers, all working together under single purpose, it really doesn't matter if you follow Agile or Lean or any other of these kind of like TM'd processes. Great work is bound to emerge. Similarly, no amount of processes is gonna make a failing team any better. It will just make them fail slightly more efficiently. As a company, we focus on hiring people with a calling, not just great-looking resumes or portfolios. People who really cared about their craft and were continually trying to improve it. It's worth noting that these people are very rare, few and far between, which is one of the reasons why we're a 30-person company, not a 300-person company. As such, scaling based on passion is difficult, but it is possible. So, that being said, I would say that kind of our industry is basically a talent industry. So your primary role as a design leader is to find and nurture talent. In short, you will have to become talent scouts, constantly looking for that talent, even if you don't have open um, roles at the moment. Because by the time it becomes open, it's probably too late. It sounds glib, but the easiest way to do this is to hire a team of amazing people and build a team that amazing people want to be on. 
if it's an internal team, you want to build a team that attracts the best people from around the organization, where people get to do the best work, where folks have the most fun, and more importantly, have the best opportunity to learn and grow as individuals. So if you're in a 100 or 200 person company, or even a five or 10 person company, if people see that, if you're the source of gravitation, the rest of the organization, the best people wanna to flock to you. And that's really what leadership is, is being inspiring and having people follow you, rather than management, which is really about telling people what to do. When Clearleft started back in 2005, we were arguably the first UX design agency in the UK, which meant we had that first mover advantage. Back in the day, if you wanted to go and work at UX, if you wanted to do the best work possible, we were really the only game in town. But jump forward 13 years and it's not like that anymore. Building up a great team takes hard work. It means getting out there, it means speaking at events, it means growing your influence. You can't be a great design leader by spending all your time behind the desk. You need to be out there and showcasing the amazing work that you do, but more importantly, the amazing work your team does. This is not about you, this is about your team. And people in the room will get inspired if you go up on stage and you provide a platform for all the great work your team does. Who wouldn't want to go and work for a boss like that? It's important to realize that salaries are literally just table stakes. The best designers I know aren't really motivated by salaries. Of course, they need to pay the bills. They want to get the sort of the basics right. But really, they're motivated by amazing design challenges and an opportunity for per per uh, permanent growth. This also produces a network effect. If you hire good designers early, they will then attract their friends, and their friends will attract their friends, and they've got these you know, great kind of sort of cyclic kind of feedback loops. You also need to signal to the community that you really care about individuals and you invest in their kind of growth. So providing things like generous conference budgets, support for people who wish to start speaking, organizing internal brown bags and visiting lecturers, in-house workshops, other learning opportunities are great signalers that you really care and invest in your team. The number of people I know that work in companies that say they're committed to design, and yet they send one person out of 10 or 20 to a conference each year and treat it almost like a reward rather than a fundamental part of your learning program is crazy. And then they wonder why people don't want to come and work there. Your physical environment means a lot. People spend more time at work often than they spend at home, so you need to make it as comfortable and productive as possible. We're not just talking here about beer pong tables and kind of office slides. Um, the place doesn't have to look like a frat house. But just simple things like having plenty of wall space, plenty of meeting rooms, space to work, space to focus, space to think. I've worked with so many companies that have said that they really, really value design. And then you go into their office space and the HR or the kind of facilities manager is having stand-up arguments with the head of design because they took a, took a picture down, a really, usually really naff picture, to stick up some post-it notes. And they're like, oh, you're going to get in trouble or you must you know, put that back up like, you know, before the end of the day. If you saw John Coco's talk, it's exactly that same kind of thing. So you need to fight for your team, you need to fight for space, because otherwise it becomes a, an energy sap. I worked with another company, one of the biggest kind of design brands in the world. They were so great at design, they wanted their space to look immaculate, and that meant no actual design could happen. Because if somebody was visiting and they saw like a sticky note, oh, that wouldn't fit with our aesthetics, and so all the walls were stripped bare, and it was really frustrating. In fact, you know, there's a real trend at the UK at the moment about teams, internal teams, going and working at WeWork Studios because they're actually one of the few places you can do get work and stick things up on the wall. I also think it's important to hire slowly. Everyone seems to be in a rush these days. You know, don't rush any important decisions because if you hire the wrong person, the damage they can do is huge and often will affect the whole rest of the team. Steve Jobs apparently used to say that it's better to have a hole than an arsehole. 
which is slightly ironic if you know Steve Jobs' management style. But I guess like most organisms, one heart soul is enough. Um, you also need to make sure you have a good balance of people with different interests and attitudes. A lot of early stage startups are, are filled with sort of pioneers, these people that just want to go in and like build the new universe. However, these also are the kind of people that get bored really quickly and move on. They maybe not be the right person for kind of scaling products or extracting value. So there's this idea of like uh, pioneers, settlers, and town planners. Design teams often want to stack the deck with pioneers, but you need a lot of settlers and town planners to actually create the space for good work to happen, then extract the value. So let's say you spent three months and you've done a ton of hiring, you've got all the right people. Now, how do you keep them there for longer than 18 months? One of the biggest reasons I see for people to leave, like I said, is they're sold this amazing design culture and this culture of collaboration. Then they get into the job and in the first week it proves not to be reality. One of my friends was there in their new job for six weeks before they were issued their laptop. They were just sitting around all day twiddling their thumbs, not knowing what to do, because they also told they couldn't bring their home laptop in. Does that feel like a positive design organization? Like no thought of kind of onboarding. Like Clear Left are a small company, we're a 30-person company, but we have onboarding processes, we have an onboarding website, we've got kits we give people when they join. If you can do that at a 30-person company, you can do that at a 300-person company or 3,000-person company. It's one of the jobs of the good designer or design leader, you know, to kind of fit this stuff out. Making sure that the values that you say that you're going to be delivering actually sort of live up to reality. And this comes down to sort of purpose. You need to create a, cl a, a clear mission statement, a clear set of values that the rest of your team can align to. Make sure your decisions as a leader meet those values, otherwise they'll ring false. I know so many companies have got this really, really fancy list of values and it sits in a desk somewhere and the way they behave is anything but. So if you've got values, live with them. If you don't, you need to, to reassess. Because people stay if they feel they're doing meaningful work. And so your job as a leader is to make meaning, make meaningful work. A good way of retaining and motivating people is to, you know, obviously, you know, foster a sense of community and collaboration. If people are surrounded by colleagues that are also their friends and people they really care for, they won't want to leave. Partly because they sort of have this sort of family feel, partly because they're having so much fun learning, and, and partly because they just won't want to let their team down. This means creating a tight social network, and one way of doing this is obviously kind of like merging your work and your life together. This is kind of the mode of Silicon Valley, you know, arranging movie nights and barbecues and after-work drinks. And this kind of works relatively well in the early days and for a very young team. However, you've got to be conscious that people have outside lives. They've got families, they've got home lives, and people feel pressured. If your boss says, you know, come to our party, we're doing tequila shots, you might not feel comfortable doing that, but you're going to do it because your, your boss is demanding it. So make sure you try not to pressure folk into too much out-of-office social stuff and do as much of this sort of team-building stuff in work hours as possible. So we regularly, almost like once a month, will have a trip to London to go and see a design museum, a design show. We could easily say you're doing it at the weekend, but you know, that would be really unfair. So we take a whole day off to go up and do these things because people have got homes and families. The other thing is everything you do in your company doesn't have to finish and start with alcohol. One of my friends that's in an agency now has switched off all the alcohol on Friday and have opened a juice bar because it's actually much more fun and there's a ton of people that are like, no, I don't really feel comfortable getting drunk here. There's a lot of research that shows that people don't leave companies. They don't even leave teams. They leave managers. So the sad truth is, if you've got loads of people leaving your company, 
and you're the manager, it's probably because of you. If you find yourself in this situation and your staff are leaving, it's so easy to try and protect your own egos and find other reasons. Oh, they got offered more money. They clearly weren't a good cultural fit. Actually, they weren't that good designers anyway. I hear this stuff all the time. We build these walls to protect ourselves. But if you're seeing a lot of people leaving, they're probably leaving because of you. And you need to say, how am I contributing to this? What do I need to do to change and prevent this? And a great way of doing this is just getting feedback sessions from your team. We spend so much time feeding back on them, we need to make sure that they're feeding back on us. And use this as a learning experience. It's kind of like research, really. Another, another reason people leave is they get bored or they burn out. Constantly sprinting to hit deadlines is exhausting. You know, having no flex in your resourcing and planning is exhausting. Constantly saying yes to every project is exhausting. Actually, I think it's crazy. Like When I see a lot of new design leaders that start a job, there'll be this like tsunami of work, and they just keep taking more and more and more. When I see IT leaders start, one of the first things they do is like redline all the projects they're going to cancel. But designers are so helpful. We want to just keep doing more and more. We need to start learning to say no. I think one of the reasons people actually also leave is because they look ahead 18 months. And what they're seeing in 18 months' time is exactly what they've been doing the last 18 months. It just feels like a never-ending slog. There's no excitement, there's no vision, there's no you know, sort of great sort of celebrations of shipping. It's just more of the same. And people look at that tireless backlog and go, no, no thank you, not for me, I'm going elsewhere. We also need to make sure to sort of avoid that, to schedule time to experiment, to innovate, to play. Whether that's 20% time, whether that's hack days, however you plan it, bake that time in. We need to break away from the tyranny of the sprint. You know, and whether that's kind of like, you know, um, breaking organizations into shearing layers, that's one thing that we do. If you're in a very large organization, yeah, sure, you want to spend maybe 60% of your time doing, you know, the kind of the immediate kind of BAU, but start thinking about what's going to be happening, not just in six weeks, but in six months and six years. Maybe you should be spending, you know, 70% of your time focused on six weeks, maybe 20% of your time six months, maybe 10% of your time six years. I haven't figured out whether the math works out there, but you generally get the picture. If you're constantly just sprinting, with this kind of lie we tell ourselves, oh, all we need to do is get over this hump, all we need to do is clear the backlog, then suddenly we'll have these green fields and we'll be innovative. But that day never happens. You have to work it into your schedule. In my experience, good designers are happy to spend all their day perfecting their designs. They love to craft, you know, the craft skills and are happiest when they're designing. Really great designers want to ship. They want to create designs that get into the hands of their users, their customers, as quickly as possible. They want to see their work being used. And great designers get super frustrated if it takes too long to ship. Or worse, if projects get cancelled or sidelined. And projects get cancelled or sidelined the longer they live. So your job is to try and break that wheel and get shipping faster and faster and faster, and you'll maintain a great team. If teams have got momentum and energy, it's the best thing. So shipping at pace. But how do you execute at pace? The best design leaders spend a considerable amount of their time removing organizational barriers, helping their teams move faster to deliver at a higher standard. Design systems, along with a kind of sort of broader field of design ops, are a great way of doing this. If you've got a team of maybe 20 or 30 designers in your company, you should really start considering you know, building in a design ops function. Bringing in people whose sole job is to look at the efficiency and the effectiveness of your organization. Looking at how you can get comps and designs into the hands of your users as quickly as possible. And those teams need to have a highly 
um, flexible skill set. You need designers, you need interaction people, you need researchers, you need coders. If you look at the work of people like Airbnb, they're doing fantastic stuff of building these little kind of nuggets and bridges that mean that your sketch files get live much, much quicker than they did sort of five, six, seven months ago. The other thing you need to do is just model good behavior. Visibly take care of the small details, a kind of whole broken window methodology. Sometimes it's just simple as a design leader of walking around the studio when everyone's busy and emptying the bins or making a round of tea, particularly if you're British. It means a lot to people. Just because you're the head, director, or VP doesn't mean you shouldn't get your hands dirty. In fact, I think it means you should. If you're doing this, it shows to your team that you care. If you're off in another meeting, it shows to your team that you couldn't give a fuck. You need to be a good example to follow. As I'm sure you're aware, Google's Aristotle project looked at a whole bunch of key indicators for what high-performing teams delivered. And they came up with a sort of following list. You know, the desire to make impact, to have meaning, structure and clarity, dependability. But the very, very top one was psychological safety. This idea that you can put your head above the parapet and you're not going to get shot down doesn't mean that all of your ideas are, have to be sort of taken in. We're not talking about kind of, you know, just pandering to everybody. But this sense you're around a collaborative group of people and your ideas are worthwhile and you can kind of share. So that's the first thing, building psychological safety. Okay. In order to support your team, you need to make sure they have all the necessary resources, support structures in place. They also need, to, like I say, to know that you're, they're valued, important members of the team. After all, if designers are constantly having to fight for resources or to kind of justify their own existence, very little work is going to get done. I know so many organizations where actually about 20% of the team's time is spent delivering design, and the other 80% is kind of running around trying to coordinate and, and orchestrate all the other teams that are going in random different directions. So if you can focus on bridging that gap or, or narrowing that gap, it's amazing. As such, as a design leader, your job is to promote the value of design around your organization. This can be done in dozens of ways. Organizing, like I say, lunches, lunch and learns, company-wide team design mailing lists, regular crit sessions. One of my clients basically has a kind of like a drop-in for anyone around the organization. If you want to learn about design, if you're working on a project, just come on a Friday, we'll buy you coffee, we'll look at your work, we'll help you out. There are great ways of showcasing the value of design in your organization. You know, senior designers running design thinking activities, group facilitation exercises. So one of the reasons why I ran a design thinking workshop on Tuesday, like so many people in your organizations are gonna be making design decisions, but they're not trained in design. Product managers, product owners, senior executives are making design decisions every single day. And there usually are not enough designers to, to sort of like stretch. So managing up, managing outwards, and making sure that they have the tools and techniques necessary to make better decisions will ultimately make your lives better as well. Now, designers often have such strong belief in the power of design that we get frustrated when people don't see it immediately. As a result, it's easy for designers to get drawn into battles they can't win and leave feeling beaten and deflated. You know, believing the organizations don't get design. The old saying goes, you trap more flies with honey than vinegar, although science shows you actually trap more flies with vinegar than honey, so just bear that in mind. Don't ask me why. Um, they're mad for the vinegar or the, or the flies, but um, as the old saying goes, yeah, you, you trap more flies with vinegar than honey, or honey than vinegar, so really good designers are able to build collaborative relationships, forge alliances, demonstrate how smart design can kind of like help others meet their individual goals. You know, rather than battling for, for the, the, the power of design, go in and help all your peers 
hit their goals, hit their quarterly targets using design, and then they will keep coming back to you time and time again for help. If you're that person that goes around and on the ivory tower just argues all the time, they are going to avoid you like the plague. One of the best ways of operationalizing design, apart from building up a design ops team, is to weave design into the governance fabric of your organization. So design isn't you know, just involved in delivery, it's involved as early as possible. One of my friends who's a design leader basically was offered this really, really boring task by their bosses. It's like, you're the head of design, you're a senior UX person, very, very senior person. We need someone to come and take this ugly Word doc form and make it look pretty. Now, most design leaders would go, well, that's not for me, that's for a junior, you know, and also, don't you understand what design is? Like, I'm not going to start making Word docs pretty. But this Word doc was the way that the organization commissioned projects. And the way it was done before is basically like, what are your requirements? What is your deadline? What is your budget? Irrespective of how long it would take, whether they actually, you know, the budget was sufficient, it was just a big list of things. So my friend basically redesigned it, but he didn't just make it look nice, he completely changed it. He made sure that they weren't asking for requirements, but they were asking for outputs or out, sorry, outcomes. He made sure that they weren't saying that we need it by this date, but like, you know, saying, um, uh, you know, is there anything driving, you know, the delivery cycle? Uh, and also, one of the other things he did is he made sure that every KPI that the organization put in that was kind of finance or focused had a sort of balancing KPI around kind of like user sort of satisfaction or user experience to make sure that people couldn't just say, well, look, you know, we've got this long page, let's break it up into five, and then we can make five times as many page views, and that will mean five times as many adverts. You can do that all the time if you're just your boss and you're just like saying this is what we need. But if you have to like balance that with like we want to do this, but we also want to maintain our net promoter score, then you've got this sort of like, you know, these pair bonds that kind of keep you true. So apologies for the language, but you know, I'm hoping my Britishness will make it sound a little bit charming. But essentially there are two ways, thank you. Essentially there are two sorts of managers in the world. There are those that protect their teams from the shit coming down from above. And there are those that spray that shit directly onto their teams. <laughs> it's a vivid image, I know. Um, and the best leaders are obviously the former. They're the ones that protect their team from the falling crap in order to help their teams get on and do great work. So you need to be a shit umbrella, not a shit funnel. Leadership is undoubtedly hard, um, even more so for design leaders who typically find themselves in this sort of, you know, charting a new way rather than following somebody's kind of, you know, well-trodden path. As such, it really is important to get external help. You'll find a lot of executives in sort of mid and large side organizations will have kind of executive coaches. I think it makes sense to do the same. You know, whether it's just a friend that you know that's maybe a couple of years ahead of you in their career, just go and offer them to buy them lunch or coffee every now and again and ask for their advice. If it's maybe paying a professional kind of coach or mentor to kind of sit down with you every couple of weeks or do a Skype call to kind of help you sort of solve your problems. This will really help. It will really help you manage upwards. Um, it will also help you manage down. A lot of very career-focused managers spend their whole time looking upwards, kind of giving their bosses a sense that everything is going super well, where basically the whole office is on fire. Um, they're basically sucking up. They want to get that next level of promotion. Unfortunately, if you manage, you spend your whole time managing up, you'll end up having happy executives, but a really disgruntled and demoralized team. And I see this all the time. I see this, you know, it, it almost feels like I go into design teams, you're like, where's your managers? Like, well, we haven't seen them for three weeks, but they're having lots of really important meetings, we know. So then spend your whole time managing upwards. Now, it can be difficult in a fairly flat organization, which is kind of why you need to kind of think about your structure. 
you know, it's really difficult to do your job as a design leader or manager if you have more than four to six direct reports. You can't check in with everyone on a weekly basis if you've got more than that. This is why having a VP of design supported by a series of directors, supported by a series of leads is really, really useful. However, it is also worth noting that kind of managing people can be really hard, particularly if they're designers, particularly if they give a shit. You don't know how tough things are. Like if you've got kids and you've got two or three kids running around making a mess of your house, try having 20 or 30 kids that all think that the things they're drawing on your walls are actually going to make it better. <laughs> it's really, really tough. And a lot of designers are quite sort of precious. So you've got to figure out the right way to kind of like take their lovely pictures and say, well, maybe don't put them on the wall. Maybe put them on this bit of paper and I'll pin them on the fridge. So you can really crush individuals sort of motivation if you kind of take the wrong approach. But ultimately, good design leaders, they look after their team. They show an interest in their team. They know what's going on in individuals' lives. They know, you know, if people have gone on holiday or, you know, they've just, you know, had a, an anniversary or stuff like that. And the only way you can do that is sort of having regular one-on-ones, regular check-ins. It's basic stuff. But you'll be amazed how many people I know that say, like, you know, you doing weekly check-ins? Yeah, weekly check-ins. When did you do the last one? About six weeks ago. You know. And actually, a lot of the time, what happens is bosses are so important that they'll, they'll cancel that meeting. And they'll cancel that meeting. They'll cancel that meeting. They might not even tell the person they're meeting that they're cancelling. It'll just pop up in their diary. If you're the person that's working for that design leader, and that happens to you, does that make you feel special? Does it make you feel loved? Does it make you feel cared for? And does it make you feel that person doesn't give a crap about what you're doing? And particularly if on that day you'd kind of summon up enough courage to have that really hard conversation with that person about that, that raise or that problem that's kind of blocking you. So you need to show that level of care. And you need to use one-on-ones as a design research. You know, one of the challenges a lot of design leaders talk about is, oh, I'm going to stop doing design. You're not. Actually, design leadership is one of the highest forms of design. You're doing research. You're, you're doing service design. You're changing culture. This is really, really valuable stuff. But don't forget the basics. Also, make sure you spend time walking the floor. You know, if you've got a spare half an hour, just walk around the studio, talk to people, see how they're getting on. Just be present. If only people see you in times of meeting, they're kind of like maybe a little bit stressed or, or, or busy. Just hang out at the kind of coffee area and kind of chat to people and show you're interested. Be present. The number of design leaders I know who are not present or present for like, you know, 30 minutes a week, it's not good. When you do provide feedback to people, make sure it's actionable, but also make sure it's said with kindness. Um, there's a lot in uh, Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, which really bugs me, particularly the whole like ninja, rock star, kind of like San Francisco bullshit. I hate that. Um, but I kind of think for my sort of style of design leadership, I'm often too polite. I'm very British. Um, I'll go into a meeting and I'll sort of like feel that I've had a really challenging meeting. Like I've got a staff member who's really underperforming. But I go in and like, yeah, I really explain to them what they needed to do. And I come out, and they're like, oh, I had a lovely chat with Andy. Everything's cool. No. I'm not really good at confrontation. So I kind of sort of, I, I care personally, but I struggle to challenge directly. So I fall into this ruinous empathy quadrant. <laughs> a lot of like, people I know in so California, particularly, they're really good at challenging directly. But they don't necessarily show that they care, even though they think they do. And they fall in this sort of obnoxious aggression sort of quadrant. And this stuff is so prevalent at the moment, or, or so kind of like zeitgeisty, that Radical Candor appeared in an episode of Silicon Valley, which I thought was kind of cute. 
the key thing is we try and treat every human as the same. You know, we kind of treat all of our staff as kind of like, you know, um, sort of almost like personas when they're all individuals. So a lot of leadership models kind of tend to be fairly binary. I think it's much more important to kind of understand where your, your, your team are in their kind of like career progression. Um, you know, are they really, really motivated? Are they highly competent? Or are they relatively new and under-motivated? And you need to pick different modes for that. With some people, you need to coach them. Some people, they need support. Some people, delegation is fine. Some people, they need to be directed. And you need to make sure that individuals sort of work in a different way. Um, one of the things, I can't remember if it was sort of um, uh, Kim Goodwin. One of, one of my friends recently was talking about how they actually keep a binder of all of their staff. Basically, like, you know, whether it's, a, whether it's a printed document or just like an Evernote file that basically said, like, this person responds best to this kind of treatment. This person responds best to this kind of treatment. This person's, these are their goals. This person's goals are over here. And making sure that when you go into that meeting, you're aligned and you know how to deal with that individual. I think another important thing is we're really good at critiquing. But I actually think we need to praise publicly and do a lot more public praise and do a lot more private critique. I think me and John Coco might disagree on that subject, but I've seen so many kind of organizations that think critique is beasting. Like, we'll get the design team up on stage in front of the whole organization, and we'll show them how shit their work is. One of the clients we work with at the moment, basically, when that happens, they'd have these like monthly town halls. And surprisingly, a lot of illnesses seem to happen on that day. Because no one wants to be pulled out of the crowd and kind of publicly beasted. So, and also, it's kind of this, you know, this macho, kind of aggressive sort of culture. So if you want to sort of privately you know, critique someone, maybe sort of take them to one side. But make sure you're regularly publicly praising people, because that balances things out. It's a good idea to have some kind of leveling system in place. Um, if your organization doesn't have one, you might want to see if kind of like the IT team do. Um, this is a really early version of kind of the clear left leveling system. This is, this is way old now, and I actually haven't read it to make sure, see what it says, but, but we've got a whole bunch of new ones now. But basically, it's like, you know, this is what a lead looks like to me. This is what a principal looks like to me. This is what a director looks like to me. This is what a VP looks like to me. Peter Meerholtz actually is, um, in his book, um, Org Design for Design Orgs, has a really, really good sort of publicly available um, Google sort of spreadsheet of how he sees design levels. And actually, as a design leader as well, you can look in there and go, well, look, actually, my title is director, but I'm doing more VP type stuff. And you can use that to go to, to level up in your own company. But this basically gives people, particularly on your one-on-ones, a really clear framework to say, these are the behaviors that you're doing now. If you want to move to that next level, here are the new behaviors you need to adopt. Because otherwise, like, it feels like it's mystery meat. It feels like when you give people rises, it's basically when you fear they're going to leave, rather than because you think they've done a really great job. And also, when people around the organization suddenly see somebody sort of get a rise, um, they'll be like, why did, that, why did that happen? What did they do that, that I don't know? Maybe they're buddies with the, the MD. So making it clear that these are the behaviors. And that means that then you're not also kind of on this fake idea that you progress based on age or experience. You know, you might be a 10, 15, 20-year career designer, but really only lead material. Sadly, that is true. You might be a three or four year UX person, but have run through those ranks because you're demonstrating the level of skill that you need to operate at that level. One of the challenges I have is I've created a team that are really, really autonomous. They just get on and do amazing stuff. However, I struggle a lot with accountability. 
there's this kind of accountability ladder, which actually is quite negative, but you might see some of these behaviors amongst your team. If people are blaming others, if they're kind of coming up with excuses about why stuff isn't being done, if they're just sitting there and hoping that something that is broken in the organization will change, you have a fairly low accountability organization. Whereas if people are owning it, they're finding solutions and getting on with it, then you've got a quite highly accountable. I actually prefer this thing called the leadership ladder, which kind of switches it around. So these are kind of the behaviors that you as a leader should expect to see from your team. You know, if you've got a very low accountability designer, they might go, tell me what I should do, or I think this, or if you're lucky, I recommend we should do this. If they've got a high level accountability, they say, well, actually, I would like to do this, or I intend to do it, or more importantly, I've done this, are you cool with it? Or I've been doing this, are you cool with it? And that shows that they're not waiting for you to give them permission. They're going out there because they trust you and you trust them. So really, these were my sort of five key concerns. I see repeating myself over and over again in organizations. The challenges are simple. They're finding talent, they're retaining talent, they're executing at pace, they're managing up and they're managing down. Now I've tried to share some of my personal experiences, but I don't believe there's a one size fits all approach to kind of creative leadership. Instead, I think it's a lot of common wisdom, and I think it's a lot of just obvious tactics. Like I say, a lot of this stuff is bleeding obvious. And it's bleeding obvious because it's the right thing to do. It's true. However, it's amazing how many or how few people are actually doing this stuff. You can read all the design leadership books or the leadership books you want, but it doesn't matter a jot if you're not putting this into practice. All you're doing then is basically delivering on sound bites. So effectively, good design leadership is easy to understand, but it's bloody hard to execute well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.